Hello, my friends and fellow true crime lovers, and thank you so much for tuning in to Secrets in the Desert, Episode 4, The Bowling Alley Massacre. I'm your host, Titi Jimenez. I hope you all had a wonderful holidays. I can't believe it's 2020. Time flies by when you're enjoying life. Before I dive into the case this week, I wanted to thank all of my listeners and subscribers for the love and support since launching this podcast. I have always loved true crime, and it's awesome I can share different stories of these tragic cases from around my home state of New Mexico. This podcast means so much to me since losing my sister in 2016. It has oddly helped me heal. It gives me so much joy that you all take the time out of your busy week to listen to me talk. I know that the first couple of episodes were pretty rough sounding, but with every episode I'm getting better. But again, thank you all so much for listening. I also wanted to let you know that over the next couple of months, I will be putting out my new episodes every two weeks instead of every week because I'm a tax specialist and this is my busiest time of year. But as soon as business slows down, I will be dropping new episodes every week. Now let's get into this week's case. Have you ever wanted to start your own podcast but don't know how or think it'll be too expensive? With the coronavirus ravaging the world right now, I know firsthand that money is super tight. But guess what? Anchor is a free app that lets you create your very own podcast. And the best part? Anchor doesn't charge you to make your podcast. I started my podcast, Secrets in the Desert, a little over a year ago on Anchor, and it is so easy. There are creation tools that allow you to record, edit, and publish your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, and my podcast is currently streaming on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, and Radio Public, just to name a few. And of course, on the Anchor app and Anchor.fm. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, so the more listeners you get, the more money you make. It's everything you need to make a great podcast all in one place. So if you want to make a great podcast very easily, download the free Anchor app in your app store or go to Anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M to get started on your free podcast today. And yes, it's that easy. Today I will be discussing the still unsolved case about the bowling alley massacre that happened in my hometown of Las Cruces, New Mexico. This case contains graphic language, so listener discretion is advised. On the morning of February 10, 1990, seven people were shot inside of our town's only bowling alley before being robbed and the manager's office being set on fire. At around 8.20 a.m., two still unidentified men walked into the Las Cruces Bowl bowling alley where they shot seven people, including four children, and robbed and set the building on fire. Four of the seven people that were shot were pronounced dead at the scene. The victims were 34-year-old manager Stephanie Sinak, her 12-year-old daughter Melissa Repass, Melissa's best friend, 13-year-old Amy Hauser, the bowling alley's cook, 33-year-old Ida Hogan, 26-year-old bowling alley mechanic Steve Teran, and Teran's two young daughters, 6-year-old Paula Hogan and 2-year-old Valerie Teran. 
Stephanie Sanak, who was the manager of the Las Cruces Bowl at the time of the crime, and daughter to the owner, Ronald Sanak, was in her office preparing to open the bowling alley on the morning of February 10, 1990 at about 8.20 a.m. Her daughter, Melissa Repass, and Melissa's best friend, Amy Hauser, were in the office with her as they were going to help supervise the bowling alley's daycare that day. The bowling alley's cook, Ida Holguin, was in the kitchen preparing the food that would have been sold that day when two unidentified men walked in through the unlocked door. One man walked right past her while the second man pulled a 22 caliber pistol and pointed it at her and demanded that she walk to the office where Stephanie, Melissa, and Amy were being held by the first gunman. The two men ordered all four ladies to lay on the ground while they started to look for something. The two gunmen ordered Stephanie to open the bowling alley safe where they took between four and five thousand dollars. As the gunmen were doing this, the bowling alley's mechanic, Steve Theron, entered the bowling alley with his two young daughters, Paula and Valerie, to drop them off at the bowling alley's daycare. When he couldn't find anyone, he walked into the office where the four ladies were being held at gunpoint, stumbling onto the crime scene. This caught the gunmen off guard, and so Steve and his daughters were ordered to the ground as well, and that's when all seven people were shot multiple times at point-blank range. The gunman then set the office on fire by igniting some papers before turning to leave the bowling alley. Amy Hauser, Steve Theron, and his two daughters, Paula and Valerie, were pronounced dead at the scene after emergency services arrived. Melissa Reed passed, despite being shot five times at close range, miraculously was able to get to the office's phone and to call 911. Because of this, the girl's quick thinking, investigators were able to arrive within minutes of the crime saving herself, her mother Stephanie, and the cook Ida. Stephanie Sanak lived but ended up passing away in 1999 due to complications from the injuries she suffered during the crime. Melissa Repass and Ida Holguin remained the only survivors of the Bowling Alley Massacre. Right after the murders, police set up 10 roadblocks surrounding Las Cruces within one hour of the crime being committed. There, the police carefully screened every car that was leaving the city. The U.S. Border Patrol, the U.S. Customs Service, and the U.S. Army searched the area with planes and helicopters, but no matter where they looked or how many cars were screened, they did not find any type of evidence leading to the identity of either gunman. It will be 30 years since this crime this year on February 10th, and this heinous crime still remains unsolved. Steve Theron's brother, Anthony Theron, is pushing for this case to be solved. When speaking to the Las Cruces Sun News, Anthony said, In this day and age, things like this don't go unsolved. How did we not get these guys? That's the question I ask myself every day. Numerous people saw these gunmen, so someone out there knows something, and they need to come forward. Please hurry. Okay, Melissa, 
got an ambulance and I've got the police officers in route. They'll be with you just shortly. Okay. Okay. You didn't see what any of the men were wearing? You didn't see what any kind of the men were wearing or anything? No. Nothing, huh? They just walked in? Uh-huh. Do you know if they were black men, white men? Black men, two black. Two black men? Yeah. Okay. No, they've left. Two black males. Okay, okay. It's okay, Melissa. witnesses came forward after the shooting and claimed they saw the gunmen either walking to the bowling alley or running away from the bowling alley after they committed the crime. They were described as Mexican, but they spoke perfect English. Suspect number one was described as a Hispanic male that stood approximately 5'10 and weighed between 160 to 170 pounds. He was described as having brown hair and brown eyes and had a mustache at the time of the crime. They also noted that he didn't have a detectable accent in his speech. He was between the ages of 28 and 34 years old at the time of the murders and would be in his late 50s or early 60s now. Suspect number two was also described as a Hispanic male standing at approximately 5 foot 6 inches tall and weighing around 140 pounds. He was described as having gray or white hair and brown eyes and spoke English with a slight Spanish accent. 
He was believed to be around 48 to 54 years old at the time of the crime and would be in his late 70s or early 80s now. I will be posting the sketches of each suspect plus all the links related to this case on the Secrets in the Desert Facebook page and Instagram page. Based off of additional witness sightings, it was believed that the two suspects had fled from the scene in a green four-wheel drive vehicle, possibly a van. In the time since the bowling alley massacre at the Las Cruces Bowl, police officials have confirmed that forensic evidence was found inside the manager's office. They also confirmed that the forensic evidence was submitted to state databases for analysis, but have refused to reveal what exactly was found. Because of the circumstances of this brutal crime, investigators have been unable to determine if the bowling alley massacre was a planned crime or a robbery gone wrong. It has become theorized that the violence might have been the gunman's motive because the suspects left behind an undisclosed amount of money in the bowling alley safe. They would not have done this if their motive was just to rob the place, investigators speculated. It does, however, remain possible that the two suspects had planned to rob the bowling alley but were overwhelmed by having seven hostages and because of this lashed out with violence as a result. This can be said because the three survivors were told by the suspects that if they cooperated they would not be harmed. But when Steve Theron and his daughter stumbled onto the crime scene, surprising them, they panicked and ended up shooting all seven victims. Personally, I don't believe this is the case because Idaho Gein claimed that the men were there looking for something specific in the office but didn't find it and ended up taking money from the safe as a last resort. But that's just my opinion and not based on any facts. A couple of months after the crime, the case began to pivot away from the crime being just a robbery gone bad. Investigators began to narrow in on some specific rumors which alleged that the owner of the Las Cruces Bowl was somehow connected to organized crime either directly or indirectly. Rumors began swirling that the owner, Ronald Sanak, Stephanie Sanak's father, had some kind of shady business ties. These ties were linked to cartels who were undoubtedly very active in the region at the time. But because the gunman mercilessly shot all seven victims, including Ronald Sinek's daughter Stephanie and granddaughter Melissa, this led investigators to believe that the rumors could be true. After looking hard at Ronald Sinek, his family, and known associates, unfortunately it seemed like every attempt to link Ronald Sinek to the crime all led to dead ends. Personally, I don't believe that Mr. Sanak would knowingly deal with shady business, but again, this is just my opinion and not based on facts. He was so heartbroken and put a lot of his resources into looking for the suspects. After Ronald Sanak was ruled out as having anything to do with the crime or shady business dealings, investigators started to believe that someone else related to the Sanaks and who also worked at the bowling alley could be involved. That's when investigators started focusing on R.J. Sinek, who was Ronald's youngest son and Stephanie's younger brother. R.J. Sinek tended bar at the bowling alley, and several tips that came in in the months after the murder were pointed at him being involved. Investigators looked into these claims that R.J. was involved in some kind of illegal drug activities. It was discovered that R.J. Sanak did have a cocaine addiction, but there was no definitive evidence linking him to the crime either. 
and whatever secrets he had about the crime, he took to the grave with him because R.J. Sinak died of a drug overdose in May of 1997 at the age of 36, so police could no longer look into him as a suspect. I don't believe R.J. Sinak was directly involved in the crime, but I feel like maybe he could have owed money to a drug dealer and that's why the crime happened. But again, this case is unsolved, and since there isn't much evidence pointing in a certain way, I'm just speculating. This is my opinion and not based on facts. One of the prevailing theories that has emerged in the years after the murders is that a gang had decided to exact revenge against a specific person or persons that worked there at the bowling alley. Perhaps family or friends of the owner, or perhaps a business deal gone wrong, and the seven victims were collateral damage. It was alleged by some that the two suspects were involved with a regional gang, perhaps even hitman, that had been brought in from Mexico. I mean, Las Cruces is about an hour away from the Texas-Mexico border, and that's why they were able to get away so quickly and undetected. I feel like this theory could be tied in with the theory about owing money for drugs because it is all pretty much the same thing, but again, no one knows for sure. With the border being so close, it remains likely a real possibility, even 30 years later, as admitted by police officials close to the investigation. After all, the remaining surviving victims recalled the gunmen seeming to look for something inside the manager's office, perhaps something they were set for to, to return. Then, taking the money seemed to be a secondary goal for them. Maybe the suspect only took the money to throw investigators off of their trail. Because of the brutality of the crime, it seems like the shooting of all seven victims might have been meant to send someone a kind of message. Maybe a former associate or an acquaintance of the Bowling Alley staff was involved. We just don't know and neither do investigators. They are no closer to solving this case now than they were the day that it happened. The building that was once known as a place that brought so many smiles, but then so much heartache to the community, continues to stand in the same spot. The bowling alley has changed owners a couple of times in the years since the murders, and because the community still hasn't forgotten this disgusting crime, business really slowed down. In June of 2018, the bowling alley called Tenpin Alley closed its doors for good. As I stated at the beginning of the episode, this case, known as the Bowling Alley Massacre, remains an active investigation with investigators insisting that the case is always being worked on, claiming, it's not a cold case, but come on, it's been 30 years and not one shred of evidence has been linked to anyone. There is a $25,000 reward that still exists for any information that could help identify the men responsible for this crime. If you have any information, you can call the Las Cruces Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or 575-526-8000. Tips can also be submitted through text and your information will remain anonymous. Even though this case is 30 years old, this case still has residents of Las Cruces really shaken, and the fact that it's been 30 years, not even one tip has led to any suspect makes it even scarier. It blows my mind. I know there wasn't cell phones or CCTV back in 1990, but Las Cruces was not a very big city at the time. 
People saw these men in the days before the murders, the morning of the murders, and right after the murder. And they just disappeared into thin air, never to be heard from or seen again. I really hope that this episode helps bring renewed interest and new tips for the case. There's no reason that this case cannot be solved. All investigators need is one good tip that could break the case wide open. Well, that wraps up episode four of Secrets in the Desert, The Bowling Alley Massacre. Please join me next time for episode five entitled The West Mesa Serial Killer. You really don't want to miss this episode as it is another cold case about a serial killer out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm your host, Titi Jimenez, signing off. Until next time, my friends.